This is Travel Wise, the travel podcast for growth-hungry entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore travel, continuous learning, and the psychology of flow. Ready for takeoff? Ask me why. Welcome, everybody, to 52 Living Ideas. I am delighted to start off on this book, Flow, by Csikszent Mihai. That's the best way I can pronounce it. Um, so it's going to be led by Joya, Ash, and Maritza. And we are going to go through it chapter by chapter, but don't worry if you have not even heard of the book because we're going to make it all accessible, all right? So we're going to start, uh, we're, first we're talking about chapter one. We did a whole meetup on like an overview of this concept. Today, we are going to be talking about chapter one. Um, so we'll have uh, uh, Ash, Maritza, and Joya. Have you decided who wants to go first? We can do the same order as last time, I think. What was the order last time? I think it was Ash, Maritza, and then me with people okay. in between. Okay, very good, very good. So folks, uh, go ahead and type an exclamation mark if you would like to share what you learned from chapter one, any thoughts on chapter one, okay? Uh, that, that is uh, happiness revisited. Um, initially, let's start with people who are just familiar with the concept because we've started by putting things down on the table first. We'll have plenty of opportunity to discuss. We're going to, after that, we're going to actually identify kind of key questions um, and we're going to go into the breakout rooms to discuss the questions. We're going to come back and then we're going to do lightning round of questions. You come back with the best question that you have and then we will organize all the questions, take them one by one and everybody gets to answer them. All right, this is a topic which is actually a core topic in psychology. So even if you have not heard of this book, you would have run into this topic all the time. So um, as long as you're observant about what is going on with yourself, I think you can, you know, you will, you will have a lot to say on this and a lot to ask about this. All right, so let me get started. Let's get started. Uh, so it's going to be Ash. Joe and Jyoti first. Uh, go ahead and type, type exclamation mark if you would like to share your takeaways on the chapter. Ash, go ahead. All right. Um, so yeah, we're talking about chapter one, happiness revisited in flow, uh, the psychology of optimal experience. And uh, I think the basic point of this chapter is that to cultivate optimal experience, uh, first we have to achieve mastery over our life by learning to control our consciousness. Uh, so he writes, it is a circuitous path that begins with achieving control over the contents of our consciousness. Um, and that's because our attention or what we choose to attend to and make the content of our consciousness in any given moment is in fact the only thing over which we really have direct control. Um, so it's kind of the essence of volitional consciousness. And whenever, I'm thinking about issues of control. I always come back to the serenity prayer, which uh, I sort of paraphrase a little bit in my own words. Um, so the way, I, the way I think of it is, uh, I will practice the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, 
the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time and embracing adversity as a pathway to progress. So that's just kind of like the first half of the serenity prayer goes on from there. That's that's the part that I find most uh, helpful and interesting. And uh, what's interesting about this chapter is a lot of what he talks about really kind of maps onto that. He's talking a lot about these issues of uh, kind of acceptance of the things that we can't control and um, controlling the things that we can and, and knowing which is which. Um, and also about these issues of you know living in the present and enjoying the moment and uh, and how to do that in the face of adversity. Uh, so I, I just had a few quotes that I kind of pulled out here that, that were pertinent to all of those things. I'll I'll just go through really quickly here. That should just take a few minutes and and then I'll just kind of wrap up. But uh, so on practicing the serenity to accept the things you cannot change. Um, he writes, you know, so he's talking about uh, all of the things that we can't change in our lives, the forces that are outside of our control, our looks, our temperament, our constitution, how tall we grow, how smart we'll get, uh, who our parents are, the time of our birth. Uh, he goes on and on. He gives quite a list here. These and innumerable other conditions determine what we see, how we feel, what we do. Uh, and I would add a couple of other major categories of experience that are completely outside of our control or at least our direct control that are things that people often spend a lot of time and energy uh, worrying about, you know, that are, are a major part of the content of their consciousness, even though it really has is in no way subject to their control and therefore adds nothing to <laughs> their uh, happiness or uh, their experience. Um, the past, you know what is past is done and we can't change it so worrying about that is is something that is not really typically very helpful unless it's uh you know contemplating the past for the purpose of you know avoiding making the same mistakes twice but even there you know that's something that a lot of people spend too much time on rather than focusing on you know what they can do now to enjoy their experience um another thing that people spend a lot of time worrying about is other people's choices uh, and and actions. You have no direct control over that. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, you can try to influence other people's uh, decisions or behaviors, and you can choose uh, to a large extent the people with whom you surround yourself and spend time. And that is a major component of controlling your own experience and the quality of your experience. Um, but, you know, in any given moment, like what other people are doing is not under your direct control. So worrying about that is, Kind of wasted effort. Um, so yeah, that, those are kind of things on uh, that we should try to practice the, the serenity to accept. Uh, and then immediately after that, he you know he goes on quite a bit about the things that we can control. Um, we have all experienced times when instead of being buffeted by anonymous forces, we do feel in control of our actions, masters of our own fate. On the rare occasions that it happens, we feel a sense of exhilaration, a deep sense of enjoyment that is long cherished and that becomes a landmark in memory for what life should be like. This is what we mean by optimal experience. Um, and then he talks about how that those events uh, don't occur only when external conditions are favorable, but that people who've survived concentration camps or who have lived through near fatal physical dangers often recall that in the midst of their ordeal, they experienced extraordinarily rich epiphanies in response to such simple events as hearing the song of a bird in the forest, 
completing a hard task or sharing a crust of bread with a friend. Uh, so those kinds of experiences can be the most meaningful and enjoyable. Um, and as well as uh... Okay, looks like looks like there is a internet problem. All right, so we will go ahead, we'll, we'll continue. Um, when Ash comes back, we will go ahead and uh, go back to Ash. But uh, what we're doing, folks, is, you know, we're talking about chapter one, and everybody who has read chapter one is welcome to share at this point what they got from chapter one. So next up is going to be Joe, Jyoti, and Jay. It's the Jays again. Joe, go ahead. Yes, it's... Um... I mean, actually, Ash really, I think, nailed it uh, with the idea that most of this is about the dichotomy of control. Uh, there's a heavy stoic, stoic component, uh, but it also maps to a lot of the other things that we've discussed here in the past as well. Uh, the role that myth has played in bringing chaos to order. There is a part of that in this section as well. And there's also, I find, a really strong connection between the OODA loop and independent action and what he's talking about as far as uh, getting into a state of flow, because getting into it and getting into or increasing our capacity for independent action actually enables us to get into a state of flow. So the first thing that I noticed is that, again, it was a heavy stoic component to it was when he under under the section understanding happiness. What I discovered was that happiness is not something that happens. It is not the result of good fortune or random chance. It is not something that money can buy or power command. It does not depend on outside events, but rather on how we interpret them. I mean, that is almost identical, and he does quote Epictetus a little bit later uh, to Epictetus's and discourses, which he says, it is not events that disturb people, it is the judgments concerning them. So it's our value judgments that are then essentially uh, causing us a certain level of anxiety as well. Uh, again, he goes into the, I, I, this, I, it's funny that I almost highlighted the same exact quote that uh, um, Ash had, where he said, our perceptions about our lives are the outcome of many forces that shape experience, each having an impact on whether we feel good or bad. Most of these forces are outside of our control. Then it comes back to the dichotomy of control. Uh, this for Ash really covered it well already is for anybody that hasn't been through Stoicism 101 is that you distinguish what is in your complete control and what is outside your control. And by doing this, you're able to reach a certain degree of tranquility and your action is more meaningful because you're taking action on things that are actually able to be acted upon. Um, the one area that I've really found to be uh, interesting was the roots of discontent. Um, and again, he the, even talks about how the dichotomy control fits into that, how we feel about ourselves, the joy we get from living ultimately depend directly on how our mind filters, interprets everyday experiences. Whether we are happy depends on our inner harmony. That's really critical when he's just in talking in general or inner harmony versus external, uh, not on the controls we are able to exert over great forces of the universe, again, things that are inside and outside of our control. 
but the interesting thing is the paradise he then he almost gets to he gets into this idea of this paradox that exists with uh when we're talking about quality of life uh, the paradox of rising expectations suggests that improving quality of life might be an insurmountable task in fact there is no inherent problem in our desire to escalate our goals as long as we enjoy the struggle along the way. The problem arises when people are so fixated on what they want to achieve and they cease to, de uh, to derive pleasure from the present. What happens is they forfeit a chance of contentment. And I think that this is really interesting is because there's two things at play here is that, again, obviously the simple part of it is that you live in the present moment. And if you're in the present moment, you're obviously going to be more likely to be in a state of flow. You're fully engaged. But there's another external component to this as well. And you can get into the economic systems, and I'm not going to go too far down that road. However, you can make an account, a, a state uh, or a case that says that you have these external um, uh, conditions that are based on you consuming more. So much of the economy is based on discontent. If you're content, the economy is not gonna grow. So there is this element of it where being content is something you actually have to work hard at and understand your external circumstances and understand exactly what you're going through as well in order to make the best decisions for you to get into that state of flow. Um, you know, and then he gets into another almost, he's definitely not an Epicurean, uh, though, he, though the evidence suggests that most people are caught up on, on this frustrating treadmill of rising expectation, many individuals have found ways to escape it. And essentially what he's getting to at that particular moment in time, I, I think, is the idea of the hedonic treadmill that you're essentially the more you're trying to seek pleasure and the, that pleasure is your goal then ultimately it, it doesn't necessarily, it leads to a certain degree of, uh, of discontent. Um, I won't go on too much longer here because I, I know that we have a lot of people. So um, again, I, I found the mythos aspect of this to be really fascinating as well. Uh, the shields of culture section in particular. Over the course of human evolution, each group of people became gradually aware of the enormity of its isolation in the cosmos and the, pre and the precariousness of its hold on the survival. It developed myths, beliefs to transform random crushing forces of the universe into manageable and at least understandable patterns. And this gets exactly to what we were talking about last night. You know, you're starting to get to patterns of understanding. So the mythos culture brought order to the unknown. And so, but instead of myths now, as myths have become uh, less relevant in today's world, it, it, it's, it's an, one thing that's lost in that process, it's the individual, because you're actually managing yourself to externals. So the roots of discontentment are, inter are internal, he says specifically. And each person must untangle them personally with his or her own power. And that is really goes against mythos type of culture because that's external, that's pushing down and bringing order into your life as opposed to the order that's coming from you internally as well. 
now he talks about how religion has, you know, maybe lasted, it's, it's gone through its period where it was useful. And he cited some things like crime statistics and as well, and the increases in divorces. And I, and I have some questions about using those statistics as measurements, but you know, I'm not gonna go into those as well. Uh, the last thing I'll just talk about is essentially is the OODA loop link, which I think is very, very strong. Um, and I'll be interested to see if anybody uh, has any other opinions about that. Um, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a couple quotes that lead to it. To overcome the anxieties of depressions in contemporary life, individuals must become independent or social environment to the degree that they are no longer respond exclusively in terms to rewards and punishments. To achieve such autonomy, a person has to learn to provide rewards to herself. She has to develop an ability to find enjoyment and purpose regardless of external circumstances. There is no question that to survive the, and especially to, and uh, there's no question that to survive and especially to survive in a complex society, it is necessary to work for ex external goals and to postpone uh, immediate gratifications. But, uh, but a person does not have to be turned into a puppet jerked around by social controls. The solution is to gradually become free of societal rewards and learn to how to substitute for, for them rewards that are under one's own powers. And that's where I see the OODA loops idea of, again, how do you increase your ability for independent action? And I'll just, this will be the last thing, is that in the first paragraph of destruction and creation, it says studies of human behavior revealed that actions what we undertake as individuals are closely related to survival, more importantly, survival on our own terms. Naturally, such, such a notion implies that we should be able to act relatively free of independent or independent of any debilitating external influences. That's a really important part. Otherwise, the very survival might be in jeopardy, meaning you know that that could be our contentment essentially. Now, in this case, it's really talking about survival, but it could it could be our, the tranquility of mind in this particular instance. And viewing this instance instinct for survival in this manner, we imply the basic aim of our goal as individuals is to improve our capacity for independent action. Now, this is like gets back to the idea of if you can untangle your discontent as, as, as the author, I'm not gonna say his name, uh, has suggested, then you're increasing your ability for independent action. And that's where it really comes from an orientation perspective. I see a really strong connection between the OODA loop and, and how that fits in with uh, how we deconstruct our, our, um, our perceptions of reality. Very well put. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Joe. That was, that was great. Uh, next up is going to be a continuation of what Ash had to say, followed by Jyoti, Judith, Evanik, and Phil. Ash, go ahead. Yeah, sorry for the internet hiccup. Um, Joseph actually did a really good job of kind of covering where I was going next. He read a couple of the other quotes that I had highlighted and things about the paradox of rising expectations and the problem arising when people being so fixated on what they want to achieve that they cease to derive pleasure from the present. Uh, you know, so that kind of corresponds to 
you know, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time. So I'm not going to belabor that point too much uh, more. I, I just will add one more thing on that, which is, you know, sometimes people have this, I, I think, overly simplified uh, idea about mindfulness, that it's being in the moment in the sense of, you know, you know, that any time spent contemplating the past or planning for the future is somehow wasted and not being present. Um, and I don't think that's what, you know, Csikszentmihalyi is saying here. He's, he's talking about control over one's own consciousness. Uh, so you want to, you do want to enjoy the moment uh, as much as possible. Um, but that does require sometimes uh, co contemplating the past and, and the future. And, and the issue is just doing that with a level of conscious control. And that's really what mindfulness is about, about being aware of the contents of your consciousness and, and directing them deliberately. So it's, uh, it's just being kind of unconsciously stuck in those patterns of thought that's what you want to avoid. Uh, so that I think is all I, I wanted to say on that. Excellent. Uh, thanks, uh, Ash. Next up is going to be Jyoti, Judith, Evanik, and Phil. Jyoti. Okay. Um, unlike Jordan Peterson, this book was relatively easier to read, but I'm going to zero into consciousness. And I don't know whether I'm jumping the gun here because um, only because you guys have covered so much already about the chaos in certain ways. So I'm just going to tell you this. And can I read it from my notes? Sure, please. Okay. So consciousness in many respects, the yogis, Taoists, and Zens all uh, seek to free consciousness from deterministic influences of outside forces, be they biological or social in nature. Methods employed by each one of them produce intended results, that is to free inner life from the, uh, from the threats of chaos on one hand, and from the rigid conditioning of biological urges on the other, and hence become in, uh, independent from social controls that exploit both. Why it cannot be achieved, um, and now he's talking about why this cannot be achieved. Um, despite knowing that from thousands of years, people, um, yogis have been trying this. Why are we helpless then? Uh, our ancestors were in facing the chaos, that interferes with the happiness, there are two good explanations for this failure. The kind of knowledge or wisdom one needs uh, for emancipating consciousness is not cumulative. It cannot, be, it cannot be condensed into a formula or cannot be memorized and then relatively applied, but must be earned through trial and error experiences by each individual uh, generation after generation. Control over consciousness is not simply a cognitive skill. It requires the, it requires the commitment of uh, emotions and will. It is not enough to know how to do it consistently like athletes or musicians who can keep free playing, but what they know is a theory. Progress is relatively fast in fields and uh, that apply knowledge to the, to the material world such as things, are, uh, such as uh, physics or genetics. So I have written notes all over. <laughs> but it's a painfully uh, slow process 
when knowledge is to be applied or modified uh, to change our own habits and desires. The second thing is the knowledge of how to control consciousness must be reformulated every time the culture that I agree with, totally agree with, cultural contest changes. Um, the wisdom was great in those times, excellent in, the, in those times, but when transplanted contemporary system loses quote a bit, uh, a bit from the original power. Well, that's what we were talking about yesterday, that Bible, and we are talking about all those theories and ways of living from Bible. Now this is 21st century and we are not, we have to reformulate it. We have to put the same theories in a different era. And that's what he's talking about. So when, when these are translated in different air systems, lose uh, quotes, uh, uh, they, they lose quite a bit of their original power. The certain, uh, the certain elements that are specific to the original context and when these are accidental components are not distinguished from what is essential, the path to freedom gets uh, overgrown by bramble and meaningless mumbo jumbo. So ritual um, forms wins over substance. Seeker is back where it started. So that's where the whole thing about the consciousness comes through. The consciousness in many ways um, it's a, a representation of outside and inside world. So uh, what happens is, what is happening outside and inside the organism is such a way that it can be evaluated and acted upon by the body. It acts like a cleaning house, clear house for sensations, perceptions, feelings of ideas, establishing priorities among all diverse information. Without consciousness, we would still know what is going on but we would have to react in a reflexive and instinctual way. With consciousness, we can deliberately weigh what is uh, what the senses feel uh, and what are we and respond accordingly. And we can do uh, inherent information, intent, intended information that did not exist before. It is because we have consciousness that we can daydream, make up lies and write uh, beautiful poems and scientific theories. So in the end, I think this applies more to our state of mind than anything else. Like we may have, we may have learned something in our childhood from our Vedas and from our, you know, I'm Indian, so I'm going to only talk about Gita, Veda and what have you. But when you are translated in a new modern world, you have the concept from before, but they, that may or may not apply. However, if you have enough discipline of mind, then you are able to ward off a lot of social forces that are working against you so that you can get allured by the you know, glory of the modern world. So, um, and that requires a lot of practice, a lot of uh, give and take. So I'm going to end here so that other people can get a chance. Thank you. Thank you, Jyoti. Uh, next up is going to be Judith, Evanik, and Phil. Judith. Okay, well, everyone covered a lot of the things that I actually highlighted myself, so I'm not going to read again, but I will just say in my own words, kind of little bullets. So um, 
you know, he, he talked a lot about that um, we are taught that what counts is what's in the future. Um, we put, we think that our happiness will be in the future based on what we do now, rather than thinking that happiness can be accessible now and that it's our individual responsibility to determine um, what's important. And it requires a change of attitude to um, figure that out. And as Ajoyti um, just um, expressed, you know, this, the, it's a trial and error kind of a thing that we, you know, um, we just have to um, revisit it. We have to revisit it as a society. I did think it was interesting at the end of the chapter that he actually said that in, in every epoch, and I think somebody else already read this, but you know, just that um, different philosophies, um, religions, churches, whatever, have tried to make that more accessible for people so that the people of their generation would have access to that um, way of mastering their life and um, eliminating the outside input that might be distracting them from what's important to themselves, uh, but that it needs to be revisited because once it becomes a formula, it can be abused. So that's why it's important as societies, as individuals, well, it's an individual process, but you know, to to um, question these things and, and look, how, how do I need to change? What can I do to make it different? And just one last thing I wanted to add that I was listening to a lot of the um, Jacob Bronowski interviews. And in one of the interviews today, um, I just it just made me think of this chapter so much because he's just so um, positive and cheerful no matter what um, he's talking about. And at one point he's talking about being in the interview and he says, yeah, I'd be happy, you know, doing, um, <laughs> I'm happy in this interview. So he was like really in the, in the moment, like if he made a choice to be in an interview, to have a discussion with someone, he's gonna put all of himself into it. Otherwise he wouldn't have made that choice kind of thing. And I think that's kind of how we have to live our lives is like, do I really wanna be doing this now? Is this meaningful to me now and in my future? Um, otherwise maybe don't do it. Wonderful, thank you, uh, Judith. Uh, okay, next up is going to be actually Maritza, followed by Evanik and Phil, and then Joya. Maritza. Oh, I have to say, I, I'm just like stoked by everything that everyone's saying here. I, it's, it's like awesome. I couldn't write all the passages that I wanted to read from the book. So I think it's just wonderful that so many others are doing it for me. <laughs> so, um, I'm gonna read a little bit script and I'll go a little off script at times. Um, so everyone wants to be happy, naturally, but we also almost all of us seem to flounder and kind of fail in action in the actual achieving of this, you know, elusive happiness, right? So um, Victor Frankl said, states to us, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it, and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. He says, for success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue as the intended, unintended side effect of one, one's personal dedication to a course greater than oneself. As an unintended side effect, is, that's the piece that resonates with me. I have said this often, and it's something I, I first learned about 
in my studies on Stoicism. And I just really do love this concept of the surest path towards missing the mark for happiness is to just keep striving for it. Instead, you should live your life and let happiness be a byproduct. If you're worrying about happiness, you're not going to get it. You know how they tell you when you're standing there over the stove waiting for that water to boil? It's, it just feels like it's never gonna happen. That's kind of the concept. You know, when you walk away and you go and you're doing things and then, you know, the pot is suddenly boiling. You're like, oh, that was fast. It's kind of the same concept here that, that is being presented. So, Shiksat um, Mihail is saying to us this, you know, overall in this chapter, you know, that he covers, he, he explains to us this idea of if we seek single-mindedly only this elusive concept of happiness, but then we're not really striving for something that is attainable. And he goes on and he explains these various coping mechanisms that we individually and we as a society have evolved and you know, things that we've been doing and what and why they're not actually effective. They are just band-aids. Um, so I see a lot of corollaries here with Stoicism and also with um, Sullivan's uh, philosophies here where he's talking about you know, one follows function. It's kind of similar here and maybe I'm jumping a little forward. Um, but so, so this specifically, this happiness as an unintended side effect, it resonates with me because it, it, it does, you know, now Stoics tell us that um, the key to a good, happy life is the cultivation of an excellent mental state. Now for them, they identify that as, you know, being a, a virtue and being rational. But, and also it's like the ideal life is one that is in harmony with nature of which we are all part and an attitude of calm indifference to external events. That's another key statement to me, calm indifference to external events. Not that one is like, you know, it, it, with our head in the sand, like a flip, flip, what is it? I don't know, there's an ottoman, oh, like an ostrich that sticks its head, you know? You're not ignoring your past or your future as Ash alluded to. You're just not allowing them to so affect you that it makes it impossible for you to be in the now. Um, what comes to mind for me is if one were to make a statement of affirmation and one looks oneself in the mirror and says, I am not a victim, I will not be a victim, right? By making this affirmation, now we are saying, even if all of our yesterdays have been full of us being wronged or of much negativity, in this moment, you are making the decision to not allow these past events to, to mar your, mad, your path forward. Ash and I today, we just visited, we're, we're in Galapagos Islands, by the way. We just visited uh, a, um, 
a reserve for um, giant tortoises. And we struck up a conversation with a gentleman there who's an artist and, and he said so many things, but the one that I want to share with you that I think is almost, I could have just said that line and shut up. He said, you know, people often forget that when you're looking for the path, it's right under your feet. So simple concept. And yet, duh, how often do we look? I mean, really, all the sayings about seeking your goal or seeking the path tell you to look forward. That's not entirely wrong, but also look down, right? It's right here in the now. So I, I you know, thought it was like, okay, well, that's words of wisdom. So I should really write this down. <laughs> uh, Sheik said, Mihail also tells us that, he tells us that this book, it's going to focus on happiness that results from a person's actions, which is an internal focus. And it emphasizes this same concept. And it's also a stoic concept of seeking this indifference to external events. It's not that you're ignoring them, but you're trying to give yourself, you know, let it affect those innermost parts of you less. And the reason being is because you actually can't control them. Like, um, so uh, there, the, um, so he, Shik sent me I don't know why I wrote his name so often in my notes. <laughs> he, he believes that a true approach, um, you know, the, the approach that must be considered and embarked upon is to strive for self-control. And, and this directly, you know, this feeds into what um, Yoti so lovely read out for us you know, the, that he believes that the control of one's consciousness is what will in turn lead to control over the quality of experience. And the experience is this flow of which we, we speak and we're going to continue speaking together. And because the, the fact of what is being presented to us is that your experiences today are going to shape you and it's going to put you in a state and by seeking control over these experiences that's the key to putting yourself in this state where you get this constant happiness byproduct without just constantly trying to grab it it's just going to happen and you might notice i mean have you ever i'm hoping the answer is yes for all of you that at some point in your life you're walking through a day and you just stop being like, I am so content right now. And if you haven't said it out loud, try that going forward. Say it out loud. I'm so content right now. That, that's an experience that you can control. And it'll help get you into this state here, right? So it seems super easy, but you know, obviously the author is going to explain to us how easy and not easy it is. He tells us the problem arises when people are so fixated on what they want to achieve that they cease to derive pleasure from the presence. And when that happens, they forfeit their chance of contentment. So if we are waiting for that just perfect moment, or we're just spending all this time, like uh, Judith pointed out to us, waiting for that right moment, well, then you miss all those now moments. And 
that to me is kind of key to ultimately what we're going to be learning here together. So uh, the other author also tells us, if a person learns to enjoy and find meaning in the ongoing stream of experience, in the process of living itself, living itself, guys, the burden of social controls will, autom will automatically falls from one's shoulders. So now this one passage is when he's speaking to us about the fact that we are by necessity shaped by our culture and our society. And there are cultural and societal goals that must be observed. And, and Joe read to us, I think it was Joe, but he, this, the fact that yes, we cannot escape this, but even more emphatically, yes, we must still create a second set of goals for ourselves, and I think that that is those to me are this is the setup. I view the you know chapter one as the setup for where we're going to go down the path of delving more into how we can gain control of our experiences and how we can create this you know set of goals that works in harmony with our societal and cultural goals in a way that allows us to be present. And so it's kind of the whole, you know, people say plan, plans, plans, what is it? Planning are every, planning is everything. Plans are, are useless. If you prep, you have to not be so rigid as to not allow yourself to see the right now. Thank you. Thank you, Marisa. That was, that was wonderful. Uh, next up is going to be Evanique, Phil, and JJ. And then we're going to, uh, and followed by Joya. Evanique, go ahead. Yeah, so, so many things that I was gonna say changed as I heard everybody else's. And I wanna start uh, with what Maritza was saying about content and how it struck me is when I first started reading this book, I was getting kind of depressed because it was seemingly hopeless in that, you know, they were talking about there's nothing you can change, you know, you look yourself in a mirror, you see yourself aging, you know, you're going towards your inevitable death. And I was like, wow. Um, but then all of a sudden there, when, as, as I went through chapter one, it, it created content because it was talking about your happiness isn't, you know, the car you drive or getting the boyfriend or, you know, getting, you know, or getting the house you want. It's always, you're always going to desire more. There's always going to be more to desire, more to want. That can't be where your happiness lies because you're never going to hit it. And if you look at happiness as a goal, you're also not going to hit it. But it, when it talked about you know, just going your path and enjoying the moment and enjoying the journey and enjoying and enjoying getting to the goal, like enjoying the process. It became, I became more content with it. Like, okay, this is life. Like right here, right now, it's not in your future. It's not in your past. It's the very moment that you're living and how you live it and how you take it on is the only thing that you can really control. You can't control what happens. And so going through that and then going through the first point, 
which really struck me is that the universe is not here for us. I think a lot of times we want to make it so like earth is here for us. And he says in the book, um, earth is not created for human beings, which goes against every religion, which kind of goes against everything that we've been taught. But he's like, you know, the earth is here, you're here, you know, it's not that the universe is against you or for you, it's that the universe is indifferent. It's just here. And when you think about it like that, it's like, ah. So, you know, like, if you think about it in a religious aspect, it's like, God is not waiting for you to mess up. The God or the universe, or there's not the spiritual person over here waiting to punish you if you do wrong. But there's also not a spiritual person that's like, a fairy godmother or that's just willing to give you whatever you want if you say or do the right things. It creates this contentment of if something happens, it's just because that's the way it's supposed to happen. And I love the, the way he used this, the meteor hitting New York City. Sorry, Sherry Khan. But, you know, the <laughs> meteor hitting New York City. And he's like, yeah, it's going to inconvenience a lot of people in New York City. But the meteor is doing what it is naturally supposed to do. And so like, when you think about it with floods and fires and all these things that are happening in the world, if you realize that it's just nature and you've got no choice, you just got to go with it. You got to pull the joy. I mean, pull the joy, not in the sense of happiness, but in the sense of looking at what you got and looking at where you're at. So I thought of that. And then, um, Energy, uh, I always thought of this energy and the flow, water and the towel, and like the dial going through, like water is so flexible, it'll go to the low places, it'll go to the high places, it goes over rocks and everything else. And I think that's what he's saying is like, you gotta be like water, like you gotta flow. You're gonna hit some rough patches. You're gonna hit those things that you, it's gonna hurt, but you know, ultimately, ultimately if you go with the flow like water you know if you just go with the flow it's it's going to be okay you're going to come out better um i already talked about enjoying the journey and joe talked about brought up the uh ooda loop and recognizing the ooda loop i i didn't think about it until you said it joe but i always thought of that recreation you know discovery recreation you know destruction and beginning so it's all a circle so it's like you're going to hit good points you're going to hit points that are just boring and he talks about that in the book boredom you're just going to hit points where you're just like boring like every day is the same and then you're going to hit points that are like going to destroy you unfortunately people are going to die in your family you know um people are going to get hurt you're going to go through that and then it's, you're going to recreate and so it's all in that big circle so i i thank you because i I didn't see it when I read it, but I see it. And um, happiness and success. That's the last thing I wanted to, oh, sorry. One more thing, acceptance. I think the biggest thing I got out of this is acceptance of life as it is, not as you want it to be. And I think that's very important because we, we tend to get upset when life doesn't work out the way we thought it should, the way we think we deserve it to work out. Like we deserve certain things. We've done these things. Like you've earned that college degree. You've went to graduate school. You should be making a lot of money. You should be 
uh, you know, you should be doing great. And then you're not. If he's just accept that this is what it is and this is what it is at this moment, the contentment is, and I think that's where the point where I got to the contentment about when I was thinking, it's just acceptance of the way life is right now and knowing that it's going to get better and then it might there's going to still be bad times that's going to come there's going to be good times so the last thing i want to talk about is when maritza was talking about um happiness and um you know when you try to get happiness you don't get it i was thinking of that as success in uh chapter 11 of the Tao. it talks about you know you know, you know, being afraid of success and being afraid of failure and success, you could lose it and you have a fear of losing it. So when you're trying to go for that success, like when you're trying to be successful, there's a feel of fear of failure, which is ironic because in order to succeed, most people had to fail many times. So I think that, so I think to see the relation in all that we've been doing all this week, it's just like a culmination in this chapter. But I'm going to stop talking and let somebody else talk. That was great, uh, Evanik. Thank you. Thank you. Great, great observations. Uh, next up is going to be Phil, JJ, and Joya. Phil. Well, after all this positive talk, I realized I must be a malcontent because I was not contented with what he said. And I was surprised that as a psychologist, he didn't talk about the struggle would end to the degree that suddenly there is a subconscious, unconscious. And so there's a three-way three struggle. You first have to struggle within yourself. And that's a struggle, not a contentment with what the subconscious is. And then after that, after you conquer that, I shouldn't say conquer it because I, I think of that struggle is not in a sense, uh, how should you say, uh, you are going to determine the way. I see it as a dialogue with yourself to coax yourself into an agreeable thing. It's a give and take. And sometimes your subconscious uh, gives suggestions. So when, when you do art, for instance, which I do, then in a sense, it's always this interplay that you play with yourself in a sense, and then and then afterwards you 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 do something and express it to the world. I remember I had a discussion with my sister about ten years ago, actually now fifteen years ago, and we talked about the very basic meaning of life. She says, "Well, life is for living," a very reasonable <laughs> assumption, and I told her I disagree. I said. Life is for doing something. And so therefore, life is for living is simply a matter of contentment. To me, is a matter of bearing a degree of suffering to birth an idea or something into the world. I think that, you know, I, I remember talking about nature one and nature two, which is life. Life is finding a way between the spaces in order to find a place for yourself to exist. That demands a struggle, not just a kind of like, well, that's just the way it is. No, you have to push for it to a certain degree. And that push is 
filled with a degree of anxiety, of inadequacy and all that. I remember once I talked to one of my uh, uh, young professors when I was teaching Kansas State, and he told me how he thought art was an expression of just uh, happiness and whatever. And I, told, I spent I spent actually an hour yelling at him in the phone. I said, I never experienced that. I said, what happened is afterwards, if I achieve something, I achieve a certain kind of contentment that I have birthed something into the world. But while I am struggling, it's a very painful process that, you know, that once in a while you get into the flow and you have this dialogue with your inner self. And in a sense, it flows nicely. But before that, you know, you are having this sort of almost argument with yourself to try to birth an idea. So there's always a degree that things could be better. And I'm discontented to the degree that I think I'm a malcontent. <laughs> I go, go one step further and say I'm malcontent because I am, because I think the initial thing is the struggle for what could be, what might be, and what will become a birth into the world, which is, which is what's graded in yourself. And you have to overcome yourself in a sense to achieve that before you could even overcome society. So there's, there's a double whammy that you have to go through. So it's not just a matter of saying, oh, you know, this is the way it is. I'll, I'll just be happy with like, oh, the sunset is beautiful. I'm happy with that, you know, like, no, no, you have to go beyond. You have to bring an idea into the world in a sense, not only to educate yourself, but ultimately to, to advance society and, and share with other people so they see the possibilities of what could be. So I am just taken by the fact that a psychologist don't understand that dimension that you have to struggle with yourself first. I think he hints at it, but he doesn't say it clearly enough that there's this inner struggle because, you know, because I'm thinking the flow stage, here's what I'm thinking. Not only is virtue possible out of the flow stage, evil is also possible. I'm after something bad because I want to be selfish and I'm flowing with it. <laughs> the ideas are coming. I like, oh, this is really good. You know, I could just sort of like destroy these people and do this and that. And this is like, yeah, I'm achieving everything I want. So don't fall just in love with flow without a degree of self-criticism. That, that's not all the way it is. As, as you flow with virtue, others are flowing with evil. So you, you have to understand that a flow stage is, is the push into the world to actualize something. But it could go bad and go, you know, I think the greater trouble in the universe is not the meteors hitting us, it's ourselves, it's humanity itself. We have to struggle with that. And that's a very, very important struggle. And, uh, and, and that struggle, uh, nature actually can't take care of it. You know, the, the, meteor, the meteor might get lucky and say, oh, what a lucky break, we hit the evil city. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it could hit the good city. So, uh, so, Mark me off as a malcontent because all this happy talk is not striking me. You know, I understand what he's trying to say, but it's, it's not striking to the core enough about what I want to do.
Thank you. Thank you, Phil. Next up is going to be JJ followed by Joya. JJ. Yeah, hi. Um, yeah, I, I would uh, detail um, a lot of the things that uh, Phil's saying. And uh, yeah, I think the, the writer, uh, I, I think Michael would be translation in, in English, his first name. Um, yeah, you know, the flow, you can, you can, uh, the flow can be destructive. I mean, I think a lot of people that um, are doing things that they don't necessarily think of in terms of as evil or, um, or necessarily destructive per se, but uh, they uh, find a rush from being in this in the flow of the things they're doing. Um, it's, uh, it's, yeah, so the flow can go, you know, it can go either way in terms of experiencing that, that uh, euphoria from being in the now, from being, um, from being whole in a sense, because when you're in the flow, you're whole, you're not divided as when you're not in the flow. When you're in the flow, you're in the past and the present and the future. Well, you're not really in the future because nobody can be in the future or the past. You can only be in the, in the, in the present, but in the sense of your mind thinking about it, you know, your mind is thinking about the past. Thinking about it. So you divide it and that creates anxiety, right? So I think, I think as a Christian, I think, you know, who hopes for heaven, for life in heaven, um, I, I envision heaven as a flow, as, as an eternal flow, because there is no danger, there's no risk, there's no uh, struggle between, okay, am I, I going to follow virtue or vice? Um, am I gonna, do I care whether I hurt myself or hurt others um, to be in, in a, in a non-depressed, you know, and to be excited about what I'm doing? So, um, but here we, we're training, you know, I think that we're training and we have a taste of the flow, we're in the flow of certain moments. And, uh, but yeah, I think the writer kind of touches on it. And, and I think it's a good thing. I mean, you know, on the internet, you will find things like the inventor of the flow, like he's the inventor of the flow. I mean, this is something that has been for millennia, you know, it's been discussed, I think, and, and uh, for over millennia. And, um, but he has presented it in, a, in an interesting way. But yeah, I don't think it's exhaustive, definitely, from what I have seen the texts. And uh, that's my two cents. Uh, thank you, JJ. Uh, so next, we're going to go to Joya, after which we're going to go oh. to breakout rooms for about uh, 20 minutes. And then when we come back, you come back with the best questions that you have about this chapter or flow in general. So you can bring up any question uh, related to uh, flow after the breakout rooms. Joya. Oh my goodness. It is so amazing to get to go at the end of everyone's presentations today. I wanna start by saying this really struck me because I think people know going forward, uh, it's going to be just myself, Ash and Maritza who will be facilitating the, the, the future discussions in this series. And as Srikant described it to me, uh, 52 Living Ideas is his baby and he is giving it over to us to babysit. And in this discussion, it really occurred to me what a magnificent baby has been created here through 52 Living Ideas the ability to look at this chapter one through the lens of the different discussions that have come up in this group. I even just started trying to list them out, making the connections here with Stoicism, with philosophy of the Bible, with Indian yogic philosophy, with Taoism, with Jacob Ranowski, with Louis Sullivan, with Oodaloop. 
it's just been amazing to me how we've just been able to have all of these different connections and see flow through all of these different lenses. Um, there was, and I think you know, and when I went through some of the notes that I had taken, so many people brought up so many of the really great quotes. There was one that hasn't been mentioned yet that I do want to bring up. And it's gonna to get to, I think the big point that I wanna make, which is looking at this through an understanding of seeing the paradoxes that are involved in happiness. But I wanna start with this quote. So, and I'll say, I, I usually refer to our beloved author here as MC. I think he, he does go by Mike. Um, I mean, he's from Hungary, but obviously now lives in the United States and has worked in the United States and, and goes by the nickname Mike, but I always just call him MC. MC says, contrary to what we usually believe, moments like these, the best moments in our lives are not the passive, receptive, relaxing times. Although such experiences can also be enjoyable if we have worked hard to attain them. The best moments usually occur when a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. Optimal experience is thus something we make happen. And a few lines later, he says, such experiences are not necessarily pleasant at the time they occur. And in listening to our conversation here, I heard all of these different, what I consider seeming paradoxes that come up when we talk about happiness. First, there's the seeming paradox between the internal and the external. As so many people brought up, the, the, this is about focusing on your internal consciousness, bringing order into your internal world. But how do we do that? Flo tells us, and Mertz, I think, was kind of getting into this, that you can't just go out and seek or pursue happiness in its own way. How you actually get into happiness is by getting so involved in the external task at hand. It's by losing your sense of self in the task at hand that you then achieve happiness. So there's this, this kind of seeming tension between the internal and the external. I think it's related to this seeming tension between control and not control. Ash brought up the serenity prayer and the aspects of life that we can take control over, the difficulty of the wisdom of knowing the difference between what we can control and what we can't control. And so much of life is trying to find the wisdom of this difference and even the seeming paradox of taking internal control when external situations go against perhaps how we would have liked them to go. There's a, a seeming tension between the present moment and also the future and the past. And here I even wanna bring in, connect this to something else from our 52 Living Ideas discussions that hasn't been brought in yet, which is the topic of language. The way I see this is that the present is what connects us to our aliveness. You, you can only be alive in the moment. Ash, Ash pointed out the past is gone. Uh, the future may never come here. That to be alive is to be in the present moment and to figure out how to thrive is, is about recognizing being in the present. And at the same time, the nature of our consciousness and what we get specifically from language and writing, this abstract ability that allows us to understand the past and use it to plan the future. This seeming tension of having to both be in the present and also thinking about the past 
and the future. And the big way that I always like to think about this, what I always think, and so it, it really struck me that Csikszentmihalyi named this chapter Happiness Revisited and, and pointed out that a lot of these ideas that he's discussing here are not anything necessarily new. This wasn't anything he discovered as much as he was starting to bring it to, to the attention of the academic psychology departments that he is, that, and I think that's why we've been able to make such great connections with all of these other thinkers and intellectual traditions. And the way I see it, what all of these traditions are telling us is that there is this paradox where at the same time, we have to be both satisfied and dissatisfied. And the way I see it is that the key to happiness is maintaining both of these simultaneously. On the one hand, you have to be in the present moment and find the joy in the present moment. And simultaneously, you have to be dissatisfied. Ash, I know as a philosopher, loves to talk about his definition of a human being as the problem-solving animal, which I absolutely love. But this idea of being a problem solver gets to this point that you have to be simultaneously dissatisfied and focused on learning, growth, making things better, and simultaneously satisfied. To me, that, that, that's the big takeaway and what I think we're going to really get to explore in all of these discussions. And then getting to maintaining this balance of being both satisfied and dissatisfied, it gets me to tie in also what Phil and Craig were coming here saying at the end. And interestingly, this is some of the cutting edge research on flow. So I'm gonna put um, a link here in the chat, which is an article that was written by uh, this one researcher who's out right now, his name is Brent Hogarth, who's doing research on what he calls the dark side of flow. And even in the beginning of this article that I'm going to post, he starts even by quoting um, this book, but we haven't got into it yet. But he, he quotes MC here as saying that uh, while flow is a powerful motivator, it does not guarantee virtue in those who experience it. Uh, although the literature is sparse with research on potential negative consequences of flow, MC hinted at a possible destructive side to flow, stating that, quote, like other forms of energy from fire to nuclear fission, flow can be used for both positive and destructive ends. And so this is coming up in future chapters. So I'm hoping everybody comes and joins us for, for these discussions. But this is an important aspect to think about with flow. The way I see it, flow is a tool. To me, learning about flow is learning about how to leverage your biology, but it is the tool that can be used for good or evil. And this is why I think we do have to integrate what we're learning with flow with philosophy, with studies of virtue, which is why I think it's so amazing that we're able to do it in the context of this wonderful container that is 52 Living Ideas and the in-depth explorations we've had into philosophy with this group. So I'm gonna post this link in the chat and then turn it back over to Srikant. Wonderful, thank you, thank you, Joya. So uh, firstly, let me tell you about the plan for the flow, uh, the flow meetup will take, take place every other week. So it'll be two weeks from now, but the, it's going to be at a new time, seven to nine. Okay, it's gonna start at 7 p.m. Eastern time to 9 p.m. Eastern time. And the reason for that is that I'm actually handing over this baby in the 7, 7 p. 
p.m. to 9 p.m. slots to different people. And I'm hoping that people will take care of it really, really well. And I am very confident that Joya, Ash, and Maritza will do a fantastic job. The reason for that is that I want to do even more things, okay? Because on Fridays at 9 p.m., I'm starting a series on Ascent of Man, okay? One of the things that I want to bring in is science. And Jacob Bronowski, he really knows science. He's a deep scientist. It's not about products of science. It's how do you do science? How do you use your mind? And he's going to take us through a tour of the history of, of man, you know, history of human beings. You know, how did we get here? And he's going to, he has this very unique insights on every stage. He has deep insights about how minds of scientists work. Uh, so we are starting off with the first episode. I always like to cheat. So I started by doing a pilot of the final episode. So everybody knows where we are going, but we are going to start with the first episode uh, next Friday at 9 p.m. Okay, um, so I'm starting the breakout rooms. So folks, uh, those of you who are new, we have four rules that we have used in these meetups that work beautifully. Rule number one, in the main room is you raise your hand when you're speaking. In the breakout room, you can just raise your hand like this or in Zoom or something like that. So it becomes easy for people to talk. Second rule is keep on topic. Third rule is be brief. There are all kinds of amazing people who have lots of things to say. And if you don't want to speak, you don't need to speak. Okay, it's you're welcome to just listen. Uh, but if you're going to speak, be brief so you can hear other people speak too. And number four, feel free to speak your mind. Speak authentically, disagree with anybody on anything, but do so courteously. Okay, those are the four rules. And each of the room has facilitators who are going to make sure that everybody gets to talk. We're going to run this for about 20 to 25 minutes, around 22 minutes or so, and start off by letting everybody talk about their, you know, what they got from the discussion, what they want to raise, have a general discussion. When you come back, come back with the biggest question that you have about this chapter or about flow in general. I'm going to you know, compile all the questions, organize them, and we are going to try to answer them. I'm starting the breakout rooms now. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back. All right, it's time for the lightning round. So, what we're going to do is we are going to start with the best questions that we have, the biggest questions that we have either about this chapter or the flow or flow in general. Uh, go ahead and type exclamation mark if you would like to put your question on the table. We're going to get all the questions, we're going to organize them, and then we are going to go through them one by one and everybody gets to answer them. All right, so go ahead and type exclamation mark if you would like to put your question on the table. Ash. Right, thank you. So uh, my question really is, uh, I've been trying to uh, understand flow from a point of view of the uh, 
of the four brain chemicals, uh, meaning uh, dopamine, uh, oxytocin, endorphin, uh, and uh, and serotonin. So, uh, and obviously, do dopamine is about is about uh, uh, is about uh, some is about a, a reward that that's upcoming. Uh, endorphin is really about uh, something that is uh, sure. Uh, uh, Ash, go ahead and just put it as a question. At this point, we're just putting the questions down. We'll go ahead and answer them separately. Okay, thank you. So your question is, um, I'll, I'll type it out. No, you can go ahead and speak it out. Go yeah. ahead. So the question is, how do I understand flow from from a, from a, from which chemicals in the brain does it most closely associate itself with? Wonderful, Be beautiful question. So the question is, um, how do you think of flow in terms of the four brain chemicals? All right. Next up is Dave. Dave, what's your question? Where are you looking for happiness? Okay, very good. Where are you looking for happiness? It's an excellent question. All right. Who would like to put their question questions in? Go ahead and type exclamation mark or raise your hand in Zoom. Joe. Um, I guess, do you need a philosophy of life in order to re reach a state of flow? Okay, do you need a philosophy of life to reach a state of flow. Very good. Anybody else? This is the fewest questions we have ever gotten in this. <coughs> uh, Jeff. So um, one way that I experience uh, flow or the lack of it is in uh, what I might call momentum. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, often the you know the barrier to establishing it is kind of kind of get over or get you know through the inertia, and so sometimes the way that I can um, uh, get through that inertia is is to begin a habit in a very small easy way and where it's not too painful for me to schedule it, and so my question has to do with regard to kind of the relationship maybe between um, habits and flow, especially as a way of, uh, of gaining momentum. Okay, um, very good. So what is the relationship between habits and change of habits and flow? Wonderful. Um, okay. Uh, Phil, what's your question? Uh, Phil, you need to unmute. Is flow a fundamental principle or is it a process that interacts with other principles? Very good. Is that activates flow, principles. Very good. Uh, a fundamental principle or does it interact with other principles? Very good. Next up is going to be Jyoti. Do altruistic people have a better flow than selfish people? Okay, very good. Altruism and selfishness. Um, who has better flow? Okay, uh, that's very good. All right, so we can get started with these questions. 
folks, it's a good idea to put the question down because you get to listen to everybody's answers uh, to it. Uh, let me see. I'm going to give a couple of seconds for people as I organize it. Uh, fundamental, okay. Um, philosophy and flow, habits and flow, altruism, and four brand chemicals. Okay. All right. So we'll start off with um, Phil's question. Um, where does the, the principle of flow fit in? What is the, um, you know, are there other, is it a fundamental principle of how you live? Is this a fundamental ethical principle? Are there other principles which are co-equal or more fundamental than that? Are there competing principles, whereas you do flow at this time and something else at another time? So where does flow fit in, in the hierarchy of principles of action? Uh, if you'd like to answer the questions, go ahead and type uh, exclamation mark or raise your hand in Zoom. Joya. So flow is, and I realized we never actually got a definition from MC yet of a definition of flow, but flow is, is generally defined as an optimal state of consciousness where you both feel your best and perform your best. So the way I see flow, I do see it as a kind of process. It, it's, it's a state. Um, to, to connect this with Ash's question, a lot of the, the most interesting research suggests that flow is a state that happens when you have the simultaneous um, release of all of these neurochemicals, dopamine, serotonin, anandamide, uh, oxytocin, endorphins, that this is something that happens biologically. And then what Mihai Csikszentmihalyi really gets into are some of the qualitative aspects of this flow state, that you are totally absorbed in the task at hand, that your sense of self vanishes, that time seems to pass strangely, that there's this sweet spot between challenges and skills. Uh, and so the way I, I see this is that flow is a kind of process, but you need I would say the principles, you need the philosophy to make sure that this process is going to be used for good and not for bad. Excellent, thank you, uh, Joya. Next up is Dave, Joe and Jack. Dave, what do you think? What is, what, what is the place of the concept of flow in hierarchy of principles? Yeah, thanks, Shikant. Uh, just read the first chapter, but in the discussions in the small group and the previous uh, discussions, to me, I think the best description for me is it's a tool that it's not going to be in that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but I think it's for me to learn how to select when I want to be in the state of flow for you know a work situation, a relationship situation, or what the case may be. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next up is going to be Joe, Jack, Maritza, and Phil. Joe, Joe, go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm just going to like, because actually I think jo uh, Joya uh, captured it uh, beautifully. Uh, the idea that it is a process. And, and once you have this kind of process that you do have a set of principles and conditions by which you're going to measure yourself. So the idea that, again, I and I think Joya already mentioned this, the idea of this balance between realistic goals and um, 
and uh, the the your skills match the opportunities, um, and you're in complete focus at a particular moment in time. Those are conditions, and those are principles that you actually need to have in order to under the definition that we're going on. There's also some external conditions that we also need to understand culturally as well within the context of how we fit into the, the pro, how our, we ourselves fit into the culture as a whole. So there are a set of principles that, that are working together um, and it is a process uh, as we've defined it here. Anyway. Thank you. Uh, next up is going to be Jack, Phil, uh, Marisa and Ash and Jyoti. Jack. Yeah, I just wanted to um, to point out on page four, towards the end of the second paragraph, I think he actually does have a definition here. It says, um, I developed a theory of optimal experience based on the concept of flow. And then I, this looks like a definition to me. It says, the state in which people are so involved in an activity that nothing else seems to matter, the experience itself is so enjoyable that people will do it even at great cost for the sheer sake of doing it. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Jack. Uh, next up is Phil, followed by Marisa and Ash. Phil. Yeah, it, it's my question. Actually, you didn't state it correctly, but it's my question. And uh, it, it seems to me it is a process of interacting between foundational principles. That's the reason I insist that before flow, there has to be something such as uh, uh, ethical principles, uh, because it flows from one Fundamental. So I see it as kind of like the quanta that controls the electron to the to the the proton. Uh, you know, a, a graviton is the exchange between the two. So it's actually, in a sense, uh, well, psychologically, as not an object, it is a process of interaction. Thank you. Uh, next up is uh, Maritza and Ash. Uh, yeah, so it's actually me. Um, so yeah, with regard to the question of where does flow fit in um, in a ethical framework, I basically agree with what everybody's been saying so far. I was just going to add kind of maybe another angle on it, which is uh, a philosopher I know has a concept uh, for traits that are not themselves either virtues or vices. Um, but which can enhance the virtuousness or viciousness of, uh, of an action or, or a person's character. And uh, she calls those moral amplifiers. And flow isn't like a, a character trait, like a virtue or vice in that way. Um, but like some other examples of moral amplifiers would, amplifiers would be things like intelligence or perseverance. Um, but, and, it, and it seems like flow is similar to those in, in that you know, like Phil was observing earlier, it can be used for good or bad ends. So yeah, I definitely agree with him that uh, it has to, it's, has to be placed in an ethical framework uh, with this understanding it integrated into, you know, an understanding of what virtue is and being directed towards that. Thank you. Thank you, Ash. Next up is Jyoti followed by Joe. Jyoti. Yeah, what I was going to say to Phil was, I don't think there is a formula. Even the book says, the MC says, there's no formula that you can use. Um, and um, 
you know, you just have to uh, use your hit and trial method, whatever works for you. And there's nothing, there's no theory that you can memorize. Uh, it, it's, it depends on any, every situation. Every situation is different. And you have to, you know, use your own imagination for it. Thank you. Uh, next up is Joe. Yeah, I mean, in a way, this kind of combines, and I don't want to get too far ahead of everybody, but this combines Jody's question, my question, and uh, Phil's is that the idea that it is a, it's an ethical framework um, that you choose. So Jody's question was, do selfish people have more, uh, you know, flow or reach a state of flow rather than than ethical people or less selfish people? And, you know, it's an interesting question because this goes to the idea of what's your philosophy of life, what's your ethical system that you're actually using as your moral compass in order to guide yourself. And once you have that, that's why I think it's important because it has to be able to, has to be coherent to a certain degree. So you could be a utilitarian and maybe reach a state of flow a little bit, you know, just as well as a virtue ethicist. But, um, but, that's why I think that this is where it requires a set of principles in order to reach a state of flow, coherent set of principles. Otherwise, you lead to a degree of cognitive dissonance that will inevitably be very painful. And that which would actually take you away from your state of flow because obviously you'd be in conflict with yourself. Wonderful. So let's go to your, your question and Jyoti's question next, because it naturally flows into that. Uh, so the question is, um, do you need philosophy? You know, you, what philosophies do you need to underpin flow? Um, what about different ethical principles of altruism or selfishness? How does it, are they conducive? Which of them is conducive to flow? Are some philosophies more conducive to it. Uh, how, how does, so what is the relationship between philosophies or ethical systems and flow? Uh, so it's going to be Jeff followed by Evanique. Jeff. So it, it's, it's interesting to see the way this evolved, you know, from actually what I was considering to be a more utilitarian process, which is my question with regard to habit. And yet, Actually, um, you know, uh, Joe, uh, uh, I, I think that in some ways that flow could be both a process and kind of an organizing principle when it comes out of an ethical framework that's really important to, to a person, as in, like, what's the purpose of my life? And what am I trying to do with the energy and assets of my life. And when I get up in the morning, you know, what am I considering and what am I dreaming about and what are, what's, what's in my journal and how, you know, how am I considering what I'm going to do and who I'm going to do it with based upon that ethical framework and purpose and passion that I have overall writ large, not just within some relatively small process that I'm trying to achieve some momentum and, and you know, some ability to do in a, in a, in a very focused way. And so I think this actually brings in that other dimension. And for me, flow is, is kind of both things. It is things that we would get into that we would lose ourselves in and really be doing in a wonderful, focused, 
relaxed, concentrated way. And it is also a way of living. And um, so I'll stop there. Thank you, Jeff. Next up is Evanique, Joya, Judith, and Phil. Evanique. Yeah, I think um, when you talk about flow and uh, ethical principles or practices, I think it goes hand in hand because it, it, it controls the way you look at flow. So some people get up in the morning, for instance, and if they believe in a higher power, God or Allah or you know any of those principles, they look at how they can please God if they truly believe in their particular religion. So their flow is going to come from how do I please God and what how do I go about my day in a way that pleases God? Um, I think if you hold values is that you're going to go about your flow in a way that, you know, that conforms to your values and principles. So I think it is, I think like Jeff said, it is a tool, um, but it's a tool to use to live in your life in the way that you have chosen or in a way that you see fit. Um, I think because it's about the way you interact with the world and like what happens in the world. And I think Flo talks about how you interact with the world and what happens. In the, roles, in the world. So it goes hand in hand. I think it links up together. I think religions or ethical principles attempt to have people do that, to flow in a way that, um, I think religion tries to have people flow in a certain way or in a moral principled way. And so I think they both go hand in hand. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, next up is going to be uh, Joya, Judith, Phil, Joe, Dave, and Jack. Joya. I wanted to bring up that famously or infamously criminal activities, many criminal activities uh, can happen in a flow state. This is one of the, the, the ways in which flow can definitely be a negative. Um, and there's also a way in which flow can lead to addiction. This would tie into, um, I think it was Ash, you made the point about all the different uh, neurotransmitters that, that come with flow. Essentially, these are the, 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 all the same neurotransmitters that get released with cocaine and speed and marijuana like all at once. And there, there's a real phenomenon of people who become what are sometimes called bliss junkies. Uh, so there's a real danger of flow kind of leading to addiction. There's also a phenomenon of flow leading to really high risk, risky behaviors when people start pushing that challenge skills balance and are pushing themselves to higher and higher challenges that they maybe don't yet have the skills for. Um, so I, I definitely recommend that article I shared before about the dark side of flow, which, which gets into all of these different potential downsides of flow. But I think the best way to see it is the way that Dave brought out that, that flow is a tool. And I think we need philosophy to give us guidance and direction on how we use that tool. And as Ash suggested that flow can be an amplifier. So we wanna, I think, use our philosophical principles to know what it is we want to pursue. And then we can leverage flow as a tool to amplify and accelerate on those goals. That's the way I see it. Thank you, Joya. Next up is Judith, Phil, and Joe. Judith. Um 
Yeah, so actually in our group, we did talk about that because Joya did bring it up earlier um, about how it could be used for evil. So I was just gonna raise that same point that you just mentioned, Joya. But I'm thinking that, so it can be used good and evil, but I'm thinking what would be the qualities or, you know, you use the term, is there some kind of ethical uh, um, aspect? So maybe I'm not asking that, but I'm thinking what type of quality a person would have that would make them more um, likely to experience flow, good or bad. So I'm thinking maybe it would be like a sense of purpose, um, a sense of, commitment and perseverance to begin with, you know, and then um, then it feeds itself after that, I suppose. Because um, if people are just not interested in life and just get up and do stuff, um, they're not ever gonna experience flow, I don't think. Thank you. Uh, next up is going to be Phil, Joe and Dave. Phil. Well, since flow to me is a, a, a process that interrelate principles. I, I think I think people with caring, whether you care for others or whether you care for a certain thing, probably has a slight advantage. For instance, most of the creative artists of sorts tends to be uh, caring about either what they do or else they care about other people. Not always, but it tends to lean that way. But we not we must not forget that uh, as long as you get a group of people that share a certain principle of some sort, uh, then there's also flow. As we know with Hitler, there was a lot of flow going on. I mean, he was a master at creating this flow. So therefore, uh, it's, not a, it's not something that you could corner because you're a caring person and you care for the planet, you care for the process of creating art or whatever, I think you do have a you do have a slight advantage because when you care, you see relationship in a in a in a more special way than if you just merely share certain values and then that could be ginned up. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Phil. Uh, next up is going to be Joe, Dave, Jack, and Laura. Joe. Yeah, really quickly, I do think it's important to notice that. Uh, in flow, as we've defined it uh, in these terms, um, requires a certain degree of happiness. So if it does, you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, exactly who's happy in doing what there versus whether they're just effective in doing something. Uh, and that's an important distinction to make because this is about being, you know, as the Greeks would say, eudaimonic and a eudaimonic life essentially is what we're seeking here. Um, so uh, I just wanted to come back to something actually that Jess said was, I thought that was really important is regarding habits. Um, considering what we do know about the brain in our system one and our system two and how many decisions are actually made with our system one, I would think that a state of flow would require good habits for one in order them to reach it because if they didn't then they would probably be scrambling and a little bit of out of sorts to a certain degree given the amount of decisions that we make with our system one and habits help cultivate our system one and our heuristics so essentially building good heuristics would then facilitate 
your ability probably to be more locked in and present and happy as well, because you would think that you've cultivated those habits consciously, as opposed to just, you know, allowing yourself to be led by your own personal desires, which is something that he highlights as if you're essentially following your desires, that that's going to lead you to astray. So. Thank you, Joel. Uh, next up is Dave, Jack, and Laura. Dave. Thanks, Rikant. Well, it's obviously uh, Joy and I are partners in crime uh, because I was looking at the dark side as well. Uh, I think we associate morality and um, ethics at our, I think it's our own bias. To me, I think it's probably related to mindfulness, but I'm thinking of the focus that you're excluding the outside world. And I remember in the old days, the movies of the, of the uh, guy cracking the safe, his ear up to the safe as he turns the dial slowly, listening for the tumbler to drop, completely focused. Or the pickpocket relieving you of your billfold is completely focused on his action, not straight out the world. So yeah, I, I don't think it's a particularly uh, pristine although I think that's our ideal, but I think you can go either way. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Uh, next up is Jack, followed by Laura. Jack. Yeah, I would agree with what was just said. Um, although I'd like to say that, you know, flow is, happens more to altruistic people as opposed to people who are selfish. I don't think that that's the case. And uh, on page six in the fourth, paragraph, I think he says the optimal state of inner experience is one in which there is order in consciousness. This happens when the psychic energy or attention is invested in realistic goals and when skills match opportunities for action. So there's basically, it sounds like there's four elements. There's realistic goals, skills, opportunities, and action. And that has nothing to do with a person being altruistic or selfish, but, you know, those are elements that would contribute to the state of flow. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. Uh, next up is Laura. Laura, what, what do you think about the relationship between philosophies and flow? Okay, as I listen to all this, I'm trying to figure out how. Uh, so I think about a person interested in learning about themselves and getting, okay, so I see it as if you want to be an XY, then you need this set of criteria. And so it lays out what is your philosophy? And then you need this criteria in order to reach this goal. And you've got to do it along the lines straight up. Now about the negative part, I don't think that that person is really there. You know, I wouldn't deal with that because this person is looking for some positive change in their life. So you, you see, build all that. And I think for every situation you have to do that because for, you know, how else is the person ever gonna know how to get where they want to go? I mean, there's, it's too complicated, you know, philosophy of life and all these different criteria that you need. So that's what I see you need is this, this massive schema. Um, and, you know, maybe it comes down to pick A from column A, you know, B, C, and, you know, whatever. But right now, I, I can only see it that it has to be laid out in some kind of form like that where selection occurs and then the person can move on to the next level if they've accomplished everything in the first round and you keep on going and iterating it until you reach your end goal. And then you start again, you know, with your next set of criteria for the next level that you want to reach. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Appreciate it. 
Um, so folks, uh, it's getting late. So what I want to do is I want to talk about what's coming up and what we are going to do with uh, this book. So we're going to be going through the book chapter by chapter, and we're going to uh, do this every other week. So the next meetup will be two weeks from today. And the meetups on Flow are going to be at 7, 7 p.m. Eastern time. Okay, uh, so that's, uh, that's the thing. And the next meetup is going to be on chapter two. Um, Joya, can you give a short preview of chapter two? What yes. What chapter two so is about? Go ahead. Chapter two is called The Anatomy of Consciousness. And I think it's going to build on the conversation we've been having and, and take us even to new ideas. We're going to talk more about focus and attention. He also has this really interesting idea about the complexity of the self and about growth as being about growing in complexity. So I think that's going to be a really interesting conversation we'll have. Okay. Um, excellent. Um, so thank you very much, everybody. This episode may be done, but you can always find more travel ideas and opportunities at Delve Travel. Just visit delvetravel.com. The adventure continues. Ask me why.